Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Susan Chamberlain. I'm the Vice President for Government Affairs here at the Cato Institute, and I am delighted to welcome you to our book forum on Leaving Women Behind, Modern Families, Outdated Laws. We have two of the three authors here today and a senator, which we're delighted to have. I know she's short on time, so I'll be brief. Um, for better or for worse, we are not a beaver-cleaver society anymore. Uh, we don't have, most women are not the husbands or the spouses of working husbands staying home with their families. Most women are working. We have single moms, widows, um, working spouses, etc. Most children are not being raised by June Cleaver anymore, so our society has changed. In fact, the claim of the book is the movement of the women into the labor market has been the most important economic and social development for the past half century. But we have laws, labor laws, pension laws, um, all sorts of laws that were sort of designed for that more traditional family, and they are not keeping up. So the authors of the book that we're featuring here today will sort of walk us through um, how those laws were meant for a family that doesn't exist in the majority anymore and what can be done and how we can make things better for everybody involved. Like I said, the senator is only with us for a short time, so what I'm going to do is go ahead and introduce John Goodman, who is the founder, the CEO, and the president of the National Center for Policy Analysis in Texas. Um, he is best known to me for his incredible work in the healthcare area. He published a book with Cato called Patient Power that um, explained how we could introduce market forces into the healthcare system that would help everybody and help defeat Hillary Care in the 90s. He is one of the authors of this book and several other books, and he has a long list of accomplishments that are in your packet, so I will not go into them. Instead, I will just ask you to join me in welcoming John Goodman. Thank you very much, and I'm going to keep my introduction of Senator Hutchison very short because um, she does need to get back to the Hill for some votes. Uh, I have talked with her about some of these issues uh, for a number of years, and uh, she is aware of the problems that we've written about. She has, in some cases, actually been able to correct some of these problems. She is the chief sponsor of the Homemaker IRA, which uh, corrects some of the injustices that, were, that are there in the law. but. Uh, but there are many more that need uh, to be corrected. Uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison is my senator. She's from the state of Texas. Uh, she really needs no introduction from me. So let's give a warm welcome to Senator Hutchison. Well, John and Celeste, thank you so much for uh, doing this book. Um, I was so pleased uh, after our many conversations that you decided to uh, publish something not only uh, talking about the problems in our society with uh, equal treatment of women in the economy, but also uh, to make suggestions on how we could change it. And thank you for the flexibility. Um, I love this book. I am so supportive of of doing this, but we are starting the votes on the supplemental appropriation any moment now, uh, which is the only thing that would take me away. What really started my interest in this area was when I was a single working young woman and I started my little IRA because I knew that that was important and my father made sure that I knew it was important. And then I got married and moved to a different city, and I was, unem I was unemployed for uh, several, um, several months, and I started to make my contribution to my IRA, and 
I was told I could no longer make a contribution to my IRA because I was married and didn't have a job. So I said, what is this? I couldn't believe it. And I said to myself, too, in a society where we so value families and we want to make sure that uh, women have the ability to uh, contribute in, a, in the family and not be forced to work, why would we not allow women to set aside for their own retirement security like we do people in the workplace? People who are working at home couldn't do what women in the workplace could. So I started looking into it and determined if I ever could do something about it, I would. Because the fact was you could set aside $2,000 a year then if you were uh, working, but you could set aside $250 if you were not working outside the home. And I also started studying the fact that because women generally go in and out of the workplace, they uh, may work as single women, they might get married, have children, uh, maybe lay out for a year or two or maybe six years, uh, then go back to the workplace. They have lost that six years, not only of their IRA savings and the uh, compound interest on that, but their pensions, their uh, Social Security goes down. Everything is against them by losing that compound interest. So when I got to the Senate, uh, I was able to uh, make the commitment and fulfill the commitment to start homemaker IRAs so that today we have complete equality. If you work inside the home or outside the home, you can set aside the same for your IRA. And the even better news is that Congress has seen that it is important uh, for us to help people uh, with savings. America is the least advantageous place in the world to have savings because of our tax laws. And uh, Congress decided to increase the number of IRAs or the amount that you could um, put in an IRA and created the Roth IRA, which are two options that really do help people with the lower incomes. Uh, the Roth IRA is a great investment vehicle. And then, of course, uh, for people in the higher incomes, uh, the uh, conventional IRA now today is $4,000 that can be set aside. And if you're over 50, for really the equality of women, uh, we have added now a thousand. It used to be five hundred. Now it's a thousand. So you can set aside if you're over fifty five thousand dollars a year now. That was the makeup. We we didn't do it just for women because many men are now uh, also uh, at home and not working because in many families the woman earns more and stays in the workplace and the father stays home. So it is not discriminatory, but the makeup is for people after 50 uh, trying to help them uh, start accumulating if they have missed some of the compound interest advantages in the past. So Congress is stepping up to the plate slowly but nevertheless there. What I love about the book, Leaving Women Behind, and I have to say, John, I I was hesitant to sign on to doing a forward for a book titled Leaving Women Behind. I thought, hmm. Uh, but I love 
the fact that you are showing how we can bring uh, equality into the system in every way. And I love uh, the suggestions where we really should have the ability to have uh, separate tax returns. You can do it today, but there's a penalty for it. Um, but if a if a one spouse makes less than the other spouse, uh, if you file jointly to get those benefits, uh, you end up paying the higher uh, income rate, not your own income rate. And uh, so I think a, a, a fairer tax system so that we don't have the penalty uh, for not filing separately uh, or for filing separately um, that would be offset by having the better tax rates. Um, I have been a proponent, and we have made a lot of headway on eliminating the marriage penalty. Um, Today, we are in a very good position to have better equality when two income earner families uh, merge. Uh, you then have a more fair tax system than we used to have. The marriage tax used to be horrible because uh, you couldn't get the double deductions. It was a... Um, a uh, diminished re reduction in your uh, capabilities by not doubling the standard deduction and not doubling your brackets. So we have made a good headway, but that goes out of existence in 2010. All of our tax cuts were on a 10-year program because we had to do it with a vehicle called reconciliation. Uh, that was unfortunate. That's why the tax cuts are not permanent. We would like to make them permanent. We know that our revenue increase after the tax cuts of 2003 was the largest in the history of the United States. We know that spurred the economy, but we couldn't make them permanent because we didn't have the votes to overcome the Senate filibuster except through this vehicle called reconciliation, which only can allow a 10-year look at the, the, um, at the tax issues. So we are in uh, this period where we have the lower taxes, but we have got to do something to assure that these low taxes continue or we will have the essential tax increase when these uh, tax cuts go out of existence in 2010. We're extending some, again, the 15 percent uh, uh, dividend and capital gains rate is being extended in the bill that we will take up very shortly uh, in the conference report in Congress. But we are doing a lot to try to keep these uh, taxes low and to try to eliminate some of the discrimination in our system. Uh, flexibility in labor laws. We have tried to pass flex time through Congress just about since I've been here, over 10 years. And we can't get it through the Senate, again, because of the filibuster. The flex time would just allow hourly employees the same option that um, people who are uh, in middle management, not hourly employees, have. And that is to take off Friday afternoon to go see their children play soccer or to start the vacation early and be able to make it up in a two-week period down the road. Uh, and we have not been able to do that because there has been union opposition 
uh, to not paying uh, time and a half if you pay overtime uh, instead of flex time when many families would like to have the flex time, but it is really not available to hourly employees. So we are trying to change that, and that is one of the things that is uh, in the book as a suggestion for ways to change it. Uh, I think having more flexibility required for, um, for uh, the benefits that people can choose when they uh, are working would be so helpful. Two people who work for a major corporation today get uh, the choice of a really good health care system. But what if you had flexibility so that this one spouse took health care and the other spouse took um, a supplement or a bonus or a higher rate of employer um, contribution to your pension plan? Wouldn't that be a huge help? to two income earner families. And yet, we have not really pursued that. It's another part of the book. So I am very pleased uh, to be a part of this, a little minor part, by writing the forward. I'm so glad you're highlighting this. And I hope, John, that, um, that we can start taking some of your suggestions and pushing them through uh, Congress to do more to equalize our two income earner families, which make up 60% of the um, of the uh, women in America who are married today uh, from 12% in the 1950s. So I'm very excited about it. I thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. That, uh, that was great. Now, it, uh, it may strike some of you as a bit odd that we ever would have had legislation that says that um, if you're working for wages, you can have an IRA, but if you're a homemaker and you're not in the labor market, you cannot have an IRA. And if you stop to think about it, it may also strike you as a bit odd that uh, people even need IRAs. I mean, after all, isn't the 401k option better? Uh, if you're under 50 years of age, you can contribute uh, $15,000 uh, to the 401k, but only $4,000 to the IRA. So why is it that some people get to save 15000 and other people only get to save uh, four? Well, this book really uh, evolved over a long period of time, and uh, those examples are what I would call odd and unusual examples of public policies that seem to affect some people differently than others. And we collected other examples of that and put them in a folder labeled Odd and Unusual Public Policies. And uh, as we began to reflect on, uh, on the whole stack of issues, it became obvious to us that more often than not, it, 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 it was women who were on the short end of the stick of these policies. So then the question is, well, why is that the case? Um, uh, why is it that anomalous and unjust policies more often than not uh, are affecting women? Uh, is it that we have a misogynist Congress that just uh, looks for ways to, to harm women? And we decide that's probably not, uh, not the reason for all of this. Uh, a more likely reason is what I call the Aussie and Harriet vision of what family life is supposed to be like. Now, my co-author, Kim Strassel, is younger than I am, and uh, when I uh, posed this uh, idea to her, she didn't know who Ozzie and Harriet uh, were, but she knew who Ricky Nelson was, and so <laughs> we made that connection. But, but, 
But the key is that uh, that Ozzy, is, of course, is full time in the labor market, and Harriet is at home. And uh, equally important, Ozzy has uh, a long time relationship uh, with his employer, probably worked for that employer for his whole work life. And if this is the family that you have in mind, then you write laws with uh, to 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 accommodate their their position. Harriet doesn't need an IRA if she's covered under uh, Ozzy's uh, Ozzy's pension or his 401k plan. These, these, these IRAs, the homemaker spousal IRA, become increasingly important as people's lifestyle diverges from Ozzy and Harriet, as, as most of the world has uh, uh, since then. Now, I'm going to uh, turn the program over to Kim Strassel, and Kim is an editorial page writer for the Wall Street Journal. And if you happen to notice yesterday's journal, uh, right down the middle of the editorial page is uh, what I think uh, is the, one of the finest examples of editorial writing that, that I've ever seen. It was uh, a column on Elliot Spritzer, and it dealt with issues that, uh, that are very delicate, and if you don't write it the, the, the right way, you're, you're, you're going to uh, uh, have bad consequences. But she did an excellent job of, uh, of covering uh, the Attorney General of New York and uh, his attitude towards the people he confronts. And, including one great quote where he told somebody he was going to drive a state through his heart. Uh, if you didn't see that editorial, go back and read it. It's, it's, it's really excellent. Uh, Kim is not from Yale, I'm glad to say. Uh, she's, from, uh, uh, she's from Princeton, um, where um, who is the editorial writer from the Wall Street Journal, who is the, uh, the uh, I mean, from the New York Times, who now teaches at Princeton. Uh, um, Krugman. Krugman, where Paul Krugman teaches, yes. All right, so please join me in giving a warm welcome to Kimberly Strassel. Well, it's so nice to be here today, and I wanted to thank you all for coming, and to the senator for her kind remarks. And by rights, John really should be the one up here talking about this because he is the brains behind this book, but I drew the short straw, so you're stuck with me today. Um, I thought maybe I would just start by setting up the groundwork, and John has done it a little bit, but about how we ended up in this situation today where we have so many laws uh, and institutions that treat people in disparate ways. Um, if you go back to 1940, about two-thirds of the households out there were what you would call traditional households. The man went to work, the woman stayed at home and raised children. 1950, less than 12% of women with, the age of, with children under the age of six were actually in the workforce. Now, this happened to coincide with the time when our lawmakers and policymakers were coming up with a lot of the laws and institutions that even today govern our economic behavior. Uh, it was the beginning of the marginal tax rate system. It was when Social Security got started, labor law, benefits law, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and when they looked around, the people who were designing these laws, and they had to come up with something that fit America, they had to make some assumptions about what America looked like. Now, obviously, one of the most glaring facts were the numbers that I just told you, which is that men worked, women stayed home. But there were also a lot of assumptions that they made about the way in which people work. And again, John touched on some of these. The idea that men would go to work, they'd work for the same company their entire lives, they'd work full-time for that company, they'd get their benefits through that company, and they probably wouldn't need all the benefits they get today in particular retirement, for instance, because most people wouldn't live to be beyond 65 or not much longer, so that wasn't much of an issue. Um, there wouldn't be much divorce. There wouldn't be much of a need for child care. 
These were the things when the lawmakers looked around, they saw made up America. This is what my grandma likes to call the good old days. Um, I always actually like to tease my grandmother that there's an entire generation that thinks the global depression and world war were the best period of time in America. <laughs> but <clears throat> now fast forward to today. Most of these institutions have not changed at all. Uh, they have in ways, and the senator was talking about uh, progress that we've made in changing things, but for the most part they haven't, and yet America has dramatically changed. Today, 75% of women between the ages of 25 and 55 work. The number of women with children under the age of six who are in the workplace today is no longer 12%, it's 60%. And the numbers for working households where both spouses are in the workplace are reversed. Two-thirds back uh, in 1940 were what you'd call traditional. Today, two-thirds of those households have, a spouse, have both spouses out in the workplace. And I think more importantly, it isn't just that the numbers have changed, this huge influx of women into the workplace, but people work entirely differently than they did back in the 1940s and the 1950s. And women in particular. A lot of women work part-time because this is how they can manage their family life and their work life. So they don't work full-time for a company. Rather than working for one company their entire life, they go in and out of the workforce, which often they need to do because they're taking time off to raise children. Women also, for instance, are often the people who look after elderly relatives who are unwell. Uh, women don't always work for Ford or uh, IBM or big companies that provide all the benefits. Women often gravitate toward smaller firms because they are the ones where they can get flexibility, and that means they're not getting their benefits through them for a number of reasons. Smaller companies don't offer benefits. Um, and in, in addition, women have a lot more reason to care about retirement because we're all living longer today. And Unfortunately for the men in the audience, women are likely to live longer than you, so they have an even greater interest in retirement plans. Um, and in addition, there are all kinds of other pr issues that have come up over the years that maybe weren't as much of a concern then, but school choice, where are you going to send your children to get a decent education, health care issues, can you have the doctor you want, these are all things that women have to deal with. Now, I should mention right off, and, and it's an important point, that obviously none of this is constrained to women. Um, for all the reasons that I just mentioned, obviously there are a lot of things that women deal with more because they are the second earners, because they are the ones going in and out of the workforce. But increasingly, we do have men who are the second earners, and we have men who are single fathers. And I think an even bigger point is that any problem that affects one worker, one spouse in the household, affects the entire family. So these are concerns that everyone should care about. I thought that maybe the best way to do this, we've been kind of vague up to now talking about these sort of problems, and we've talked about the IRA, and that is an example. But I thought maybe I would go through a, a few concrete examples of how our laws and institutions haven't kept pace and the problems that they create, just to make things a little bit more concrete. And these are some of the more glaring examples. And let's start with the favorite taxes. Let's say we are using actually the example of Ozzie and Harriet, and I did have to go online and look up who they were. <laughs> but I've become quite fascinated. I'm now actually on a big campaign to get a hold of some of the old videos so that I know who these people are. I feel like there was a gap in my culture. Um, let's say that Harriet decides after many years at home that she wants to go back to work. Um, the first thing that she's going to find when she gets on the job is that she's going to be put into her husband's tax bracket. Now, the woman who's working right next to her, who may be doing the exact same job, but who happens to be single, 
is not going to be penalized in the same way in her tax situation when she comes home as the woman who is simply because she's married. Um, she may just be even doing minimum wage, but again, she's going to be put into her husband's tax bracket, and that's going to be a significant problem. Now, it can also be a problem for the men. Um, if her husband is working, she may get a job that actually earns enough that it pushes both of them into a higher, pushes him into a higher tax bracket, which means that he is now earning less of every dollar that he makes um, entirely because his wife went to work. This is a huge disincentive for to work. Um, but that's not all. The woman who, let's say Harriet has gone to work, she's discovered this about the marginal tax rates, she's discovered these problems. There are also other things, too. Now that she's in the workplace, there are things that aren't going to be getting done at home that previously she would have been doing. Childcare expenses, somebody to do the yard work. She may become best friends with the Chinese delivery man because there's no time to make dinner anymore. Now, when you add in all of these extra expenses, the average middle-income woman finds that she keeps about 35 cents of every dollar that she earns in the workforce, which is, a, I think, a fact that women who are out there living and working it and knowing, they know this, but it isn't necessarily that's as widely known. Um, I actually have an example in the book. I spoke to a woman who uh, is out in Oregon, my home state, and in her situation, and in many women's situations, that 35 cents is actually an optimistic point of view. She was a trained nurse before she met her husband. She ended up having four children. She left the workforce while she was doing that. And recently, she had considered going back to work. It was a job that she really loved. She spent a lot of time training to do that job. And when they factored in uh, the fact that her income would be added to her husband's marginal tax rate, social security, the local tax rates, and what she'd have to pay to get even part-time daycare for her children, many of whom are now in school, she found out that she'd actually lose money to go back to work. She'd have to pay to go to work, so she's not working. That's a tax example. Um, we can move on to labor law. Again, the senator mentioned some of this a little bit, uh, and she hit on the, the main topic, which is flexibility in the workforce. Back in 1938, the country passed something called the Fair Labor Standards Act, its purpose was to protect workers against abusive employers, but in a way the law has become abusive all its own. It is a law that set up the 40-hour work week, and it means that today there are still many employees who work for companies that are required to pay them time and a half if they work more than 40 hours a week. Now this is a bit arbitrary today, as many of you know, when we live in a more modern society, often service industries, it isn't as though everyone is going to work in a factory every day and working eight hours and that if you're not on the line, you're going to be disrupting the entire output of the company. And there are a lot of people who have jobs that quite easy for them to have flexibility. It's a question of just getting your work done. Um, but this really isn't an option. Uh, there are plenty of people, plenty of workers, women in particular, who, as the senator said, would like to take a Friday off, Friday afternoon off to go watch her children play soccer. Maybe their child gets sick unexpectedly. They don't, aren't necessarily, isn't necessary that they be in the office today. But it's very difficult for them to get compensatory time. Uh, now, if you look, most people would prefer that over overtime. A poll in 1995 showed that 81% of workers would prefer to get some sort of compens compensatory time off rather than time and a half. And this was such a big issue that the federal government did fix it for its own employees all the way back in 1978. If you worked for the federal government, 
you, many employees have the option of setting up a flexible work schedule. It's done over a two-week period. Uh, today, close to about 46% of federal employees use that option in some way or the other. But back in 1997, when then-Senator John Ashcroft attempted to pass legislation that would extend those rights to the private workforce as well, as the senator mentioned, uh, the unions became very unhappy and there was a lot of pressure against it and that law did not pass. <clears throat> now, one way that a lot of women get around the inflexibility of a 40-hour work week is to work part-time. And it is certainly true that if you're a part-time worker, flexibility is a key aspect of that. But it also brings up an entirely new set of problems for women in the workforce, and that has to do with benefits. <clears throat> now, as many of you know, our tax law is set up in a way that most people receive their benefits through the corporate workplace right now, and it's become to be a big, a big, uh, big benefit for most people who work for those large companies that actually can provide them child care, retirement help, uh, med uh, health insurance, all kinds of things. The average worker today who receives these gets about 30% of their compensation in non-cash benefits and the added bonus of, of course, that they get these tax-free. Now, uh, one of the problems, though, is that because of our tax law and benefit law, there is a disincentive for smaller companies to offer benefits to part-time workers. And that means that a lot of women and a lot of part-time workers have no access to these benefits. And if they do buy them, they have to buy them with after-tax dollars. Uh, this has been a real problem for a lot of families out there. There are, there are probably a lot of couples who would both like to work 30 hours a week. It would allow more than enough income for them to get by, but they can't do it because it would mean that they might both be working for companies that don't provide any benefits, and the cost of purchasing those on their own would be too great. On the flip side, there are plenty of couples who might work for companies that both offer duplicate benefits. Now, obviously, they both don't need those, but again, because of various laws, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for companies to provide, say, for instance, higher wages in lieu of benefits to one of them or different benefits, better benefits, rather than so that people could choose them piecemeal. Um, and in addition, one last thing, too, is that we have a system, because all of our tax, uh, all of our benefits are provided through companies, it's very difficult for them. They, they're not portable, which means that people who work for companies and get their benefits through them, they can't, they have to change their entire set of benefits when they move from job to job, which, as we know, happens more often out there today, or when they go out of the workforce and they come back in. Um, and they don't have the option of choosing the ones that they want, but are rather given the ones that the company provides. A final example has to do with savings and retirement. And uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is a particular concern to women because they tend to live quite a long time. Um, and yet it remains very hard for women to save. And some of the examples in this field are just marvelous. I mean, to go through some of the basic routes for saving, and again, we talked about a few of them in the beginning. We do have a spousal IRA now, so if you're a non-worker, you can put money into an IRA, although that is limited, and as John said, it's limited in a way that isn't fair. Anyone who has a 401k can put in much more a year than someone who doesn't. There are employee plans, for instance, defined benefit plans. 
problem here often for many women is that defined benefit plans are back-end loaded, meaning that they reward you the longer you serve at a company. And again, many women are going in and out of the workforce, so they aren't necessarily staying at one company for their entire life. Um, and that is a real problem. I mean, for instance, if you worked at four different companies, 10 years at each one of them, and you received all of your pension checks when you retired, versus working at one company for the whole 40 years, the person who worked at the one company will probably get about twice as much in a pension benefit than the one who had worked at four different ones over their time. Defined benefit plans reward long service, and for women who aren't always working long times at companies, this is a real problem. The other ones, obviously, are 401ks, where employees have more choice. This is certainly a good option. But again, even 401k plans have vesting requirements. They often are six years. Um, and again, many women aren't necessarily staying in a company that long. They might be going in and out of the workforce. And in addition, anyone who's a part-time employee often doesn't qualify for these plans to begin with. Uh, one thing that I found that was really interesting doing this, John actually sent me information. That there were some studies done that actually show that women are better investors than men, and I thought that was interesting. And it's because apparently men get very excited about trading stocks and they, they jump around from plan to plan, and it doesn't always necessarily help them. But I was sort of fascinated by that. <laughs> um, on Social Security, not much better than, well, actually, not much better than saving on your own. Uh, Social Security was set up. And I guess one good element of it is it is very generous to non-workers. Uh, if you are married, your husband works, and you don't, you will get a spousal benefit when he retires. It's equal to about 50% of his retirement uh, payout. And if he dies, you'll get the full amount. And, and again, this is very good for women who don't work. But I think one thing that would surprise a lot of women is that, to find out that if you do go and work, you work your entire life, and every single day you pay into your Social Security plan, you will not get much greater of a benefit when you retire than if you had never worked at all. Uh, this is one of the unfair aspects of the Social Security system as we have at the moment. Um, <clears throat> Social Security, interestingly, was set up, and there were some concerns at the time that there may be designing women who would go around and try to get marry different men and get part of their Social Security. So it actually had a rule built into it that said that you had to be married to your husband for at least 10 years if you wanted to collect on a Social Security. And again, the way that America has changed, the average marriage that ends in divorce only lasts about seven years. So again, there are some problems built into the system uh, for women who may go into a marriage with all expectations of making it work, stay at home, raise children, and because she didn't make it to the 10-year limit, will find herself with no Social Security at the end of the line. Um, there's also an issue for widows, and this was mentioned in the beginning. Again, Social Security can be helpful to widows if they decide that they're going to stay home and not work. But if you go to work, the taxes and the loss of direct benefits that you will face will create a marginal tax rate of about 87% for widows who decide to go back to work. And then in addition, what they'll find is that this money will only continue to them until the point at which their youngest child turns 16, at which point the checks will stop until they retire themselves. And women will find that for having done what the system encouraged them to do, which was to stay home, they'll now be going back into the workforce with no skills um, whatsoever. 
Let's say you actually manage to overcome a lot of these hurdles and you do save well. You can find that it's actually quite hard to use your money or get a hold of much of it when you actually do retire. Uh, there are taxes on benefits that senior citizens take. You only need to take in about $34,000 a year of extra income to be taxed on 85% of your benefits. Um, these are some of the highest tax rates in the nation that we levy on our senior citizens. And forget working, because in addition to all that, you also get to pay payroll taxes in addition. Uh, in any event, uh, I guess one of the reasons that we brought all this up is just to point out the inequality in the system. There's a lot of people out there that might look at the book and say, you know, are you trying to give women an extra, you know, extra benefits in some way or trying to help them in some way? And the point is, is that the system is currently full of biases. Um, and this, this is Basically, you have a tax system, for instance, where a tax system, a social security system that currently favors stay-at-home people over working people. You have a benefit system that favors workers over non-workers, full-time employees over part-time employees, long-term workers over people who switch jobs. And fundamentally, what most of the book's proposals argue is that what we need to be doing is level the playing field. In taxes, that might be a flat tax, a consumption tax, allowing people to truly file separate returns. In benefits, we need more flexible work rules. We need a system where companies could pay people higher wages. We need, instead of benefits, we need a, a more fair tax system where people are getting equal treatment, whether or not they're getting their benefits through their company or on their own. And in Social Security, we may need things like earning sharings, or better yet, private social, uh, social Security savings accounts. These are some of the things that, that could at least help in these problems. Um, so I guess what I would argue that all of you should do is uh, you're facing Mother's Day this weekend. Uh, maybe instead of just giving your mothers and wives flowers, you might also write a letter to your senators and congressmen and mention some of these problems. Maybe we can all get some progress made on these issues. Thank you so much for your time. That way, a little mix-up in our schedule here. Kim, John, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I like the TV reference to sort of place things in time. I'm also too young for Ozzie and Harriet. I must be right between the two of you. But when I was young, Laura Petrie, Marion Cunningham, probably names you don't recognize, but One Day at a Time came out, and that was controversial because it was one of the first shows about a family being headed by a single mom. So let's talk about this. Let's open it up for Q&A. Um, what I need you to do is wait for the microphone to come to you, and then when you get the microphone, tell us your name and any affiliation you have, and if you could keep it to a question directed to John or Kim rather than a speech or a comment, we'd appreciate that. Right behind you there. Mr. Bowes. have a graduated income tax that doesn't involve a marriage penalty one way or the other. If you have uh, one rate for a family that makes 200000 or or 100000 and it's made by one person, then you get one set of, of penalty problems. If, it's, if you change it so that two people making the same amount of money 
get to pay separately, then you have a different kind of problem. In the gay marriage debate right now, some people are saying we want marriage. Some people are saying we want to get rid of the marriage penalty. Others are saying, well, wait a minute. Actually, if we get married and have to file together with incomes roughly the same, we're going to be penalized. But it seems to me there's a catch-22 that there's no real way around. Flat tax. Yeah, I agree with you. There is a catch-22, and there's no reason, there's no way to make that exactly fair. Um, but it seems to me a reasonable compromise is to allow any two people to file completely separate returns. Um, so at least they're not penalized for, uh, for having been married. Uh, but you're right, uh, it's only through a flat tax or through uh, a general consumption tax that you avoid these problems altogether. It's not. Is, can we turn the mic on? Is this better? No. Hello? That might be better. There you go. Yeah. Close. Close your mouth. <laughs> um, my name is Joan Kuriansky, and I'm Director of Wider Opportunities for Women, and I want to thank you for raising your voice and your expertise to many of the issues that really do pose um, inequity for women, both in the workforce outside of the workforce and after they have been in the workforce. Um, one of the challenges, I think, to the recommendations that you have just put forth is the cost that is involved. Um, there have been many efforts in the past to look at earnings sharing, for instance, as a way of dealing with some of the inequities, um, looking at different ways of, of validating women's work at home in the Social Security system. But the pushback has always been that it will, at least in the short term, cost the government more money. So what I'm curious about are the policy recommendations that you could make now in this political climate which would address some of the inequities. You go ahead. <laughs> um, let me clarify the, uh, the Social Security point first. Um, we're, we're not saying that Social Security should pay women for their work in the home. And as far as earning sharing is concerned, um, it would be impossible to look backwards in time because there's no way that uh, the Social Security Administration uh, could ever get the information on who's been married and how long and so forth. It would just be monumentally expensive. But we could do it going forward. So if there have been a lot of proposals in the last several years for private Social Security accounts, it would be easy to have earning sharing for those accounts and just, just to make sure what everybody understands what we're talking about. It would mean that if you have a married couple, uh, whoever earns the wages, uh, uh, the, the uh, Social Security contribution that goes in the accounts is split between the man and the wife, just like, um, just like community property. So, it's, so all contributions to the private accounts are 50-50 regardless of who, own, who earns the wages. And that's a nice way of, of avoiding all the problems about marriage, all the problems about dependency. It, uh, it's just a nice way of, of, of dividing up Social Security. There are quite a few things that could be done uh, without a great revenue loss uh, to the federal government that we're talking about. Certainly flexibility in work. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that should be determined in the labor market, not by the U.S. Congress. That doesn't cost anything. Uh, flexibility in employee benefits uh, probably would increase tax revenue to the federal government. Um, but our employee benefits system is terribly rigid and uh, uh, what, what young couples, 200 families want is they want flexibility. There's no reason why they should have double coverage for health care, double coverage for pensions. 
and for that matter, uh, employers should be able to say to part-time employees, uh, if you take less wages, I'll cover you under the health pl care plan and so forth. Those kinds of, of, of decisions ought to be left to the workplace and shouldn't be ruled out by, by law. So um, asking uh, uh, for uh, completely separate returns, that would cost the government some money. Uh, but there are quite a few things we could do that wouldn't involve a huge revenue loss. Who else? Let me ask a question. I'd like to understand. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll go to the audience before me for sure. Hi. Uh, Lynn Osborne with uh, Ad Management Insights, but I'm also chair of the Matrix Foundation, which is affiliated with the Association for Women in Communications. One of our concerns is equal pay for equal work. And I realize that I don't know if that's covered in your book, and that's the question is whether or not that's addressed in your book. It may not have to do with existing legislation, but more the enforcement of those laws. No, we, we don't really get into equal pay in the book. Again, uh, we were trying to focus on legal situations and, and institutions that were created a long time ago that continue to disrupt uh, the way that families work out there today. So, I mean, that's the short answer. <laughs> but also, we would like to see wages determined in the labor market and not by the government, not by the Congress. And, um, you know, if, if there are uh, cases out there where women are paid a lot less money for the same work, then there are opportunities for entrepreneurs to make a great deal of money by hiring the women. But there are far fewer instances of that than, than most people think. I was going to ask about any um, opposition or the politics of this. I know when Social Security was going through, there was actually opposition to personal accounts from people who wanted to encourage more traditional families and discourage um, mothers who work. Are you, do you running in? What kind of resistance are you getting, or do you get any opposition from your ideas, particularly from women's groups? Well, one thing that's really interesting to me about this is John and I were talking about this when, when Betty Friedan died, talking about the modern women's movement, which simply isn't very modern anymore. And one of the problems that women face today is that they don't really have as many advocacy groups out there dealing with these issues. And, and that is partly because of culture wars and, and the way the women's movement has developed. You have women's groups on the left that continue to be far more concerned with a lot of touchpoint issues, abortion, um, uh, affirmative action programs, uh, and and they don't really ever address the, the economic aspects of this. Moreover, often those groups are allied with groups that tend to be hostile to some of these proposals. For instance, the unions, uh, which did not do not like the idea of getting rid of the, the hourly wage uh, system. And on the other hand, there are women's groups on the right who do like the system the way it is. They know that it often discourages women from going out to the workplace, and they are not keen to necessarily jump into the debate and change things. And so in, on the whole, the women who these issues are paramount to. These are the ones that they care about every day. I mean, abortion maybe is important to them, but the real question to them is how much money is going to be in their paycheck at the end of the month and who's going to watch their children on Tuesday night. And unfortunately, there aren't necessarily a lot of women's groups out there that focus on those issues. Yeah, if I could add to that, I think women are really poorly represented by the people who claim to represent them. And uh, now literally does not know what a marriage tax is. 
if you go to the NOW website, uh, you'll, you'll find it very difficult to discover at their website what a marriage tax really is. On the other hand, if you ask uh, Phyllis Schlafly her views on the world, she says, look, if women are working, who's going to rock the cradle? So you have uh, um, people on the left who don't believe in marriage at all <laughs> and people on the right who think women should stay in the home, and no one's representing the 90% of the women who are out there uh, uh, with, with a totally different point of view. Anyone else? Right here. Can we... I would like to mention that Congress pushed up my retirement age to 66. And I have noticed a pattern, particularly in D.C., what I call shiftings, that when I was young, I did more physical work. And that the younger women, because they have computer skills and things like that, are moving into the office work, whereas, for example, the beauty salon industry, it's I almost always got my hair cut by white women, and now it's always immigrants. And even I worked as a nurse's aide when I was young, and now it's all immigrants. And it seems that there's a shifting of younger white women, and that spirals to the point where, as an older woman, I can't do that physical work anymore, and these younger women are sort of taking my jobs, the office work, away from me. Can you comment on that? Well, I mean, obviously the workplace is, is set up to where people are trying, the companies are trying to maximize the labor that they get, and, and, and people's skills change, and, and this is the way that it has traditionally worked, and that I mean, immigrants tend to come in and, and take what are often lower-paying jobs, um, and as people, the entire country's uh, labor force has changed in the terms of the skills and what it does, but again, I think these are issues that have to be sorted out by the workplace, and I'm not really necessarily sure that Congress has any role in, in these questions whatsoever. But but I want to comment on uh, on what happened to you. Uh, there are a lot of people, surprisingly, a lot of people on the left who want to solve our Social Security uh, problems by raising uh, the retirement age. A lot of them want to solve the Medicare problem the same way. Almost inevitably, these are white-collar workers. As Phil Graham used to say, you don't see very many people out there operating a jackhammer who want to work until they're 70. You do see a lot of college professors who want to work until they're 70. So all the people who say, let's solve this problem by raising the retirement age are really, uh, they're in jobs they like, they're in white-collar jobs, they're not the, the blue-collar workers. And um, uh, I, don't, I don't think raising the retirement age uh, is the right way to solve the problem. I think we need to go to a funded system where each generation pays its own way, preferably with workers controlling the money. Okay. Well, we can move to an informal conversation upstairs with lunch. John and Kim, you've certainly given somebody who wants to represent the 90% between the left and the right of working women. Leaving women behind, modern families, outdated laws. Let me encourage all of you to buy it while we have two of the three authors here, and please join us upstairs for lunch and join me in thanking our speakers today.